Uh, this morning, we are going to continue our series in the beginning, looking at God, creation, and humankind. And what we've been doing is looking through the first few chapters of Genesis, really through this lens of some of the big questions in life. And so over the last few weeks, we've asked the questions like, where do we come from? And, and who are we? And then last week, we asked the question, so what's wrong with our world? Because clearly this world is not what God intended. Clearly something has gone very wrong. And so that's where we started. And then this week, we're going to kind of finish up that question. And we're going to look at the second half of Genesis chapter 3. If I was to give a subtitle for this morning, though, it would be the bad news. Aren't you glad you came? It would be the bad news. Because if you stay around GVF for any length of time, I'll tell you right now that you're going to hear a lot about the good news. You're going to hear the gospel a lot. It's kind of central to who we are. It's core to everything that we believe, everything that we do, all the decisions we make. Everything that we're about here at GVF is just like Paul said as we took communion. It's about Christ. It's about his gospel. But if we don't have a proper understanding and appreciation for the bad news, then the good news just isn't as good. Years ago, I was uh, living in Rome, and I was going to this little Italian church, and we brought in this uh, German pastor. And he came down, and I don't remember his name or where he was from in Germany, but I will never forget the analogy that he gave. He said, okay, just imagine for a moment that we're, we're sitting here in church, and somebody was to run in and say, hey, everybody, it's raining. He said, everyone, we all could be like, well, that's nice. That's great. I mean, rain's good. We like rain. You know, we need clean water. It waters our crops and our animals, and, and it's good for us. We need clean water to drink. It's all great. He said, but nobody would be celebrating and dancing in the aisles. He said, but just imagine for a moment that instead of living someplace where rain is in abundance, we lived someplace more like this, where the crops are dead, and the animals are dead and dying, and there's not clean water to drink. He said, then when someone walks in and they says, hey, everybody, it's raining, takes on a completely different meaning, doesn't it? See, the gospel isn't just good news. It's good news in the face of very bad news. And if the bad news isn't bad, then the good news just isn't as good. See, I'm convinced that one of the reasons that we become numb to what God does in our, in our lives, one of the reasons that, become, that uh, coming to church, for example, becomes a chore instead of a time where we get to celebrate and come together and worship our God who saved us, one of the reasons that our reading our Bible never seems to make it to the top of our priority list, one of the reasons that we struggle to be kind and generous and forgiving to the people around us, one of the reasons that so few of us ever truly seek God is because we don't think that the bad news is really all that bad. See, it's difficult to come week in and week out and praise God for saving us when we're not really convinced that we need saving. See, if the bad news isn't bad, then the good news isn't as good. So this morning, we're going to spend some time on the bad news. And here's the bad news. Let me just sum this up as, before we even get started. Here's the bad news. Sin is a disease. It's an infection. It's a virus. And it has infected every single one of us. It has infected our world. And it is slowly killing all of us. It's eating away at us like a virus. Sin infects life. And not just life. It infects every area of life. Every arena of life. Wherever life happens, sin has infiltrated. It is infected. So it has infected our marriages and our jobs and our businesses and our families and our homes and our hobbies and our sports and our government and you name it. Sin has infected. 
And just like a host can carry a virus for some time and still keep on living, with the introduction of sin, as sin comes into our world, everything, every one of us, including you and me, everything, everyone began to die. And so when we look at Genesis 3, we're going to see just how far the disease has spread, just how rampant the infection is. We want to see just how bad the bad news really is. And I can see that I've depressed several of you already. Good. Doing my job. Okay, let's, let's dive into this, okay? Um, let me give you a really quick recap to catch us up in the story, because we're not going to read all of Genesis 3. We're going to kind of pick it up midway through, okay? So in Genesis 2, here's what's happened. God has created, if you remember, God has created a perfect world. He's created man and woman. Perfect, perfect relationship, perfect relationship with God, perfect little animals running around, perfect plants and vegetation, and everything is perfect. It's wonderful. It's good. And he says, there's one thing you can't do. You can't eat from that tree over there, the one that looks really good. Don't eat that one. That's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so then what happens is Satan shows up, right, disguised as a serpent. He shows up and he begins to tempt Eve. And he says, you know what, this is all perfect. It all looks wonderful. But you know what, there's that one tree that God won't let you eat. And that tree, boy, doesn't that tree look good. I bet if you ate from that tree, your life would finally, finally be good. It'd be perfect. It'd be fantastic. It'd be everything that you want it to be. And Eve believes him because here's what he's done. We said this last week. He has planted in her mind this lie that God doesn't really love me. He's holding out on me in some way. God doesn't really love me. And so Eve becomes a spiritual vigilante. Right? She buys this lie, this lie that, that has haunted every one of us. It has been passed down from generation to generation so that every one of us at some point or another, we think, man, God must not really love me. See, if God really loved me, he would take away this sickness. If God really loved me, then, then this job would work out the way that I want it to. If God really loved me, he'd know the things that I've been praying for. That I've been praying for this person. Maybe a spouse. Maybe I've been praying for children. God would know the things that I want, the knows the things that I need, and he would give them to me. So I'm not sure if he really loves me. And so all of us, we've become spiritual vigilantes. We take our lives into our own hands. Instead of trusting God, see, I can't trust God because I don't know if he really loves me, I trust myself. And so I try to make myself happy. I try to uh, make myself satisfied, meet my own needs, take matters into my own hands, and I try to live. I try to save myself apart from God. And so Eve becomes this spiritual vigilante, and she eats the fruit, and she gives some to Adam, and he's just standing there like a lump on a log. And then they go into hiding because sin makes you stupid. You think that you can hide from God. You think that he doesn't know your sin. And so they run away and then God eventually finds them and he asks them, okay, so what happened here? And they begin to blame one another. But when we get to verse 14, it's God's turn to talk. And what he's going to do, catch this, what he's going to do is he's going to pronounce, he's going to pronounce his punishment, his judgment. But in effect, what he's doing is he is giving the prognosis for the disease. He's saying, hey, this is what you can expect. Now that sin has entered the picture, this is what's coming. So let's start with the snake. And the Lord God said to the serpent, this is in verse 14, if you're following along. Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman 
And between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Okay, just a reminder real quick. We said this last week, but the serpent is not just a serpent. The serpent is Satan. We know this from other passages in Scripture that reveal this to us. And here's why this is important. When God is making this pronouncement, he's not talking to the snake species. Okay, he's not like, okay, all you snakes out there, bad news. Your legs are going to fall off. No, no. He, he's created snakes good. Snakes are good, okay? This is not what we call a nature myth. See, a nature myth is something that you invent to explain how nature really is, okay? This isn't like somebody came up to their dad and said, Daddy, can you explain to me why snakes don't have legs? Well, son, let me explain to you. Once upon a time, there was the snake, and he deceived Eve, and then God took their legs away. That's not what's happening here. See, God is directing this judgment to Satan, But God is not without irony. And so what he does is he expresses his judgment upon Satan through the very disguise that Satan uses. So look at what he says. Cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go. What does this mean? He says, get on your belly. You're going to be crawling around on your your belly. To be on your belly was a sign of, of humiliation, of fear, like cringing back. And in fact, what, what God is saying here to Satan, he says, Satan, you like dressing up like a serpent. You like slithering around in your stomach. Guess what? You should get used to that view because I'm going to humiliate you. And then what does he say? And dust you shall eat all the days of your life. To eat dust was a sign of defeat. It's not completely unlike if I was to tell you, if we were to have a race, you and I, and I'd say, hey, you're going to eat my dust. You'd know two things. One, that I grew up in the 50s. And because nobody says that anymore. Uh, But two, that I intend to win, right? I'm going to run so far in front of you that you're going to be behind me eating all the dust that blows up, right? I'm going to win. You're going to lose. So here's what God is saying. He says, Satan, you like dressing up as a snake? Get used to the view. And you may have won the first round. You may have struck the first blow, but make no mistake. You're going to lose. And I'm going to win. And then he turns to the woman. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. So the first area of life here that sin infects is that area of life that is, is so central to life itself. Right? This is where, where women bring children into the world. New life is introduced to the world. And so because of Eve's sin, God allows, this is God's punishment, check this out. He allows sin to inflict increased pain. Childbirth is going to hurt a lot. Quick show of hands. Anyone want to argue that childbirth is easy, that it's really not all that bad? Of course not. Nobody wants to argue with that. I knew someone who did. Can I tell you this really quick? This just cracks me up. This is free. Uh, Carrie and I had lunch with this guy one time, uh, with, this, with this couple. And they didn't have kids at the time. And uh, we, had, we had our firstborn, Gabriel. And, and at some point during the lunch, he turns to Carrie and says, So, like, how bad was it really giving birth? Like, how bad? And Carrie goes, It was the worst pain of my life. And he looks at her skeptically from across the table, and he's like, really? Like, the worst pain in your whole life? 
At which point I thought Carrie was going to put her fist down his throat and ask him how that felt. I wasn't sure how that was going to turn out. But see, childbirth is painful. This is part of the curse. This is part of sin. It's painful. I've seen it. There is a reason that men don't have babies. The human race would have died out a long time ago. Believe me, there's no way, right? See, childbirth is painful. This is God's punishment that in one sense reflects the crime, right? It fits. So that every time, every time that Eve gives birth, every time a new child comes into the world, she remembers that she had a part in letting sin into the world. That every time a baby is born, a baby that will one day die, she remembers that she had a hand in introducing death to the world. But there's a second area. There's a second area that he's going to address here. He says, your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. Now, the Hebrew word here for desire is a word that it doesn't just mean like desiring chocolate. It's not like I desire a new car or something like that. This is the, the sense here that this word is carrying is a desire to dominate. It's a desire to have rule over, to have mastery over. And so what he's saying here is, is that the woman is going to have this desire to dominate, to rule over her husband, but the man is going to rule over her. Okay, so can I sum this up really simply? There's going to be conflict in marriage. Anybody surprised by this? Not if you're married, right? There's going to be conflict in marriage as the two people fight for control. See, what was God's original plan? What was God's original intention for marriage? It was that these two people would come together and they would unconditionally love and serve and honor and respect one another. That they would put each other first. But with the introduction of sin, as it infects us and then into, out of us into our marriage and into our relationships, it changes that pattern. So that now I'm no longer serving, but I'm seeking to be served. I'm not honoring, I'm seeking to be honored. I'm not respecting, I'm seeking to be respected. I'm not loving, I'm seeking to be loved. Instead of putting the other person first, I come first. And we will do whatever it takes. We will manipulate, we will bulldoze, we will run roughshod, we will be ruthless, whatever it takes to get the upper hand, to control the other person the way that we want to. Not long after Gabriel was born, um, any of you with new babies, you're going to appreciate this. Anyone who's going to have a baby, let this be a warning to you. You cannot imagine how much energy (laughs) it takes to keep this little thing alive. It's just astounding to me how much emotional and physical energy. It's just exhausting, right? And so Carrie and I, we, I remember this very clearly. By the way, Gabriel was not easy on us. Um, terrible sleeper, terrible eater, but he was cute. Remember? Yeah, it's that cuteness that keeps them alive. God knew what he was doing, okay? So we decided to keep him, and we've, so far, that's been a good decision. Okay, so but I remember one time we finally get him in bed, and we kind of sit down, and he just kind of collapse, and we eat dinner. And we're sitting there, and I look at her, and we're both thinking, who's going to do the dishes? And in my head, I start thinking, and I'm not making this up. I'm not, not proud of this. I'm like, how can I get Carrie to do the dishes instead of me? Like, what's it going to take? Like, do I need to fake an, Ill, you know, an injury? It's like stand up and be like, oh, hammy, babe, you're going to have to take over. Do I need to, like, compliment her? Honey, I would do the dishes, but you're so much better 
better at them than I am. I just, I, I, I would just be embarrassed. Or maybe I just need to like start and then break a couple and then she'll push me out of the way. Like, what's it going to take? See, these are the games that we play. And sometimes they're subtle like that, where it's just manipulative. You know, this is the way our minds think. How do we get them to do that? But this becomes the pattern for our relationships and especially in our marriages. But everyone in our lives at some point, right, our coworkers, our friends, our neighbors, our kids, whoever it is, they don't, they're, they're no longer people to serve and to love and to respect and to honor and to put first. Instead, they become rivals. They become competition. Those whom we have to defeat. And so God says to Eve, look, you're, you're going to ignore my command that I've given to you through your husband. You guys are going to fight. You're going to struggle. There's going to be power plays. And notice that this, although it's directed towards Eve, notice that it, it, it spreads. Remember what we said, that sin is like a virus. It doesn't stay in one place. And so it starts with Eve and within this context of marriage. But obviously the husband is in, included. And it spreads into every other area of life. Sin is not stagnant. It doesn't stay in one place. It always spreads. It always grows. So we've looked at the serpent. We've looked at Eve, the woman. And now we're going to come to Adam. It says, And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife. Let's stop there for just one moment. Because there's a tendency to misunderstand this. And I just want to be really clear here. Because you could easily look at that and say, Okay, so the first thing that God says he's going to punish Adam for is because he listened to his wife. And some of you guys are like, yes, there it is. Honey, I can't listen to you. Adam listened to his wife. Look how that turned out. Death, destruction, terrible things. Sorry, this is not going to work out. No, that's not what's happening. It would be kind of funny if it was. <laughs> no, it wouldn't. That would be terrible. You guys are awake. Look, this is not what's happening. Adam is not being punished because he listened to Eve. Adam is being punished because he listened to Eve. He knew what was going on. He heard the danger and he ignored it. He did nothing. He didn't do his job. Look look at what it says. Where was I? Because you've listened to the because you've listened to the voice of your wife, right? He's not in trouble because he listened to his wife. Instead, it says, You have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat. He's in trouble because he didn't he wasn't obedient. He didn't do his job. He didn't do what he was supposed to say, supposed to do. Um, this is a side, but can I just tell you guys right now? Um, and, and I'm not just saying this because she's in the room. I'm really not. She has no idea. Um, but this is for you husbands and for you guys who are going to be in those relationships. One of the most consistent ways that I found to make terrible decisions is to not listen to my wife. I can't tell you how many times she has seen something, she's understood something through women's intuition or better, the Holy Spirit leading her, where she's seen something in me, she's seen something in a situation, she's seen something in the decision that we had to make. Where if I did not listen to her, if I did not heed her advice, I can't think of a time that I haven't lived to regret it. See, Adam isn't in trouble because he listened to his wife, all right? He's in trouble because he listened, he saw what was happening, and he didn't act. He disobeyed God. And so God says, because you ignored me, because you 
uh, did not listen to my command, you shall not eat of it. He says, cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. So, so what's his punishment here? Is, is it that he has to work? No. He already had a job. Remember, he was put in the garden to, to cultivate and care for the garden. Is it that he's supposed to do hard work? No, hard work is good. There's nothing wrong with working hard. No, the, the curse here, the problem here, the way that sin infects it is that work is going to become largely futile. That it's going, to, it's going to be something that we slave away at, that we work at and we work at and we work at. And instead of getting the fruit, we get thorns and thistles. In fact, there's an implication here that the world itself, it's not just that work will be hard, but the world itself will actually conspire against us. It will work against Adam. That as he tries to bring up fruit, instead he gets thorns and thistles. Any, anybody here ever think, man, I'm not sure what my job is really about? I'm not sure if there's any real point to this. Anyone here ever think, man, my job, I'm not sure. It just doesn't seem all that fruitful or fulfilling to me. Anyone here ever feel like, man, you just keep doing the same thing over and over and over again. And what's really the point? Anyone ever feel like this guy? Sisyphus. It's an unfortunate name, by the way. Middle school was not kind to young Sisyphus. I'm just guessing. Um, on a side note, though, if you want to get in ridiculous shape, evidently pushing a boulder up a hill over and over again works. All right? Mr. Universe. All right? Yeah, we've all felt that, right? We've all felt like we're just doing the routine over and over again. Is there any end to this? Is there any fruit that comes out of this? And it doesn't matter how much you love your job or how much you believe in what you're doing. It happens to all of us. All of us feel like there's times where no matter how much we pour into it, no matter how, what the blood, sweat, and tears is, it just isn't paying off. We're fighting and we're getting more bad than we're getting good. And then at times that it seems like the very world around us is conspiring to keep us from doing the work that we want to do. And so you fight traffic and you get to work and you fight your boss and you fight your coworkers and you fight the clients. And you've got meetings upon meetings that you have no reason for, as best you can tell. And you punch the clock all for little or no reward and no appreciation. See, that's the curse. That's the curse. God's original plan was that work would be fulfilling, that we would work hard, but we would see and enjoy the fruit of our labors. It would be fulfilling and it would be satisfying, but sin has infected our work. And so he says to Adam, you did not listen to me. You were disobedient to me. And as a result, your work is going to be largely futile sacrifice. See, see, most of us in this room, thankfully, we are fortunate that we, we can earn enough to feed our families, to take care of our families, to, to have the things that we need. In fact, probably most of us in this room, we, we found ways that we can earn um, enough that we can even be comfortable, right? I have a house, but I have air conditioning. Now, as a Texan, I have to have air conditioning. I don't know if you knew this. I breathe air conditioning. It's like oxygen for us. Anyway, um, but all of us, right, all of us, to get what we need, it requires sacrifices that God never necessarily intended us to make. It's not me. It's somebody, though. Um, sacrifices to family, time with kids, time doing other things that we'd rather be doing. And if we're really honest, if we really want to get ahead and work, there have been times 
where we've been pressured to, to make sacrifices of other kinds, of our integrity, of our character. See, these are sacrifices that God didn't intend for us to have to make in order to, have, to be fruitful in our labor. Our work becomes largely futile sacrifice. It's sacrifice for little or no end. It's a chasing after the wind. But notice, it's not just work that's infected. What does it say? Cursed is the ground, the world it's, itself. Creation itself is cursed because of Adam's sin, because this is the arena in which work happens. This is where work is going on. This is where Adam is trying to do what he was created to do. And so the world itself falls under this curse. It's infected by sin. The Apostle Paul puts it this way. He says, For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning, as in the pains of childbirth, right up to the present time. So the picture here, right, is that, is that creation itself has been infected on account of Adam's sin. The creation itself now is, is subject to bondage and decay that is unmade. It's being undone. It's coming apart at the seams. Every time you hear about an earthquake or a tsunami or a tornado or a wildfire, whatever it is that destroys homes and buildings and takes lives, that's not Mother Nature. That's not Mother Nature, and she's sort of like evening the score. That's not the ecosystem balancing everything out. That's not global warming playing games with us. That's the effect of the curse. That is sin at work. And so creation has been made subject to this bondage and decay. It is literally being unmade. Creation is coming apart at the seams. Everything that God intended is slowly dying. And nowhere is this more clear than in the case of death. Verse 19, by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. See, death is the ultimate unmaking of God's creation. Adam was created out of the dust. He creates Adam as his unique and special creation, as his own image. But because of sin, that infection, that virus, it takes hold and it brings death. And what happens to Adam? He's unmade. He goes back to being what he was. He goes back to the dirt. One of the first times that I ever taught anything uh, was back at our church in Dallas. And uh, Paul was there. He had his own Sunday school class, uh, Solomon's Porch, and he invited me to come teach. I have no idea why. And um, he invited me to come teach, and so I showed up, and, and I, I'd done very little teaching. So, of course, when you, when you have very little experience, you automatically aim for light, fluffy topics. So I chose to talk, talk on death. It's just my way. I don't know. Um, and so I talked about how death is the unmaking of, of God's creation and so on. And I, and I remember afterwards, this, this, this man came up to me afterwards, uh, someone I respect very, very much, have the highest respect for, someone who has known suffering, someone who's had to bury a child. There's nothing worse than that. And he came up and he said, don't ever forget. He said, and don't let anyone ever tell you otherwise. There's no such thing as a natural death. And I've never forgotten that. Because he's absolutely right. 
Death was never part of God's intention. Death was never part of nature as God intended it and created it. Death is unnatural. It comes from sin. Death is an abomination to everything that God intended life to be. God is the giver of life, and he created all of us with the intention that we would live, that we would live in knowledge and fullness and relationship with him. But because of sin, we have taken matters into our own hands, and we have separated ourselves from God. And if you leave the giver of life, you're left only with death. And there's no going back. There's no undoing this. We don't get to stuff death back into the bottle, right? There's no putting Pandora back in the box. There's nothing we can do to make things right. There's no way back. Look at verse 22. Then Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out and take his, out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Stop there for just a second. Let me explain what he's saying here. He's saying, look, man has taken matters into his own hands. Instead of trusting me, instead of living with me, he's trying to live apart from me. He's trying to establish his own right and wrong and so forth. And he says, okay, now I'm going to banish man from the garden because there's this other tree, the tree of life. And so God in his judgment, but in his mercy, says I'm not going to allow man to stay in this condition. He loves Adam and Eve too much to leave them that way. See, if they eat, then they stay in that rebellious and separated state. So instead he kicks them out. It's an act of judgment and of grace. Verse 23, therefore the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim, it's an angel, with a flaming sword, and turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. See, because of their sin, Adam and Eve, they're driven out of the garden. They cannot stay there. God loves them too much to leave them in the garden where they might live forever, but in this terrible, fallen condition, separated from him. But once they go, the way is sealed. They're out, and there's no way back. See, you and I, we have been separated from God by our sin. Our sin has infected us. We are contagious. It is spreading. It is rampant. It has destroyed our world, and there is nothing left for us except for death. That's the only thing ahead of us, and there's no way back. There's no going home. See, this is the bad news. We live in that wasteland And the crops are dead and the plants are dying and the animals are dying and there's no clean water and there's no rain on the horizon. There's no sign. That's the bad news. Because of sin, we're all infected. And there's only death ahead of us. But here's the good news rain is coming. Did you feel the first drop? It was back in verse 15. And God said to the snake, to Satan, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. What's God saying? He's not talking to the serpent, right? He's talking to Satan. Remember, and what he says is that there's going to be these two lines 
the offspring of the woman and the offspring of the serpent. We're going to talk more about that next week. But then he goes on to describe this battle between two champions. And one is from the offspring of the woman. And the other, notice, is Satan himself. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. God's saying that one day Satan will bruise God's heel. That one day Satan will see Jesus Christ hung on a cross, dead and buried. But that Jesus will strike the final and fatal blow. And he will crush Satan's head. And he will destroy sin and death forever. See, Jesus is the hero. Jesus is the champion. He's the one that we need Years after Adam and Eve failed in the garden, years after they gave into the temptation and they ate that fruit and they said, God, we don't need you. We don't think that you love us and so we're going to do our own thing. Years after that, there's another garden and Jesus is there. And you know what he says? Father, you're not my will, but yours be done. He says, Father, I'm not going to take my life into my own hands. I'm going to give up my life because I trust you. I'm going to follow you in obedience. He doesn't eat the fruit. He drinks the cup. The cup of God's wrath. The cup of judgment that all of us deserve. He drinks the poison so that we get the antidote. See, that's the good news. That's the news that's amazing when you think about what the bad news is. The good news is that Christ, he has taken everything that we deserved. All that sin, he sucks that infection out of us. And he's beginning to remake this world that was fallen. And he can remake us so that there's life. That's the good news. The bad news is bad. It's bad. But the good news, oh, it's far better. Last thing, I'm going to leave with this, okay? Listen to me. Don't minimize sin. Don't minimize sin. Let the bad news be bad, okay? Don't minimize your sin. We have this tendency, we like to run around and be like, you know what, it's not that big of a deal that I do this, or I look at that, or I watch that, or I participate in this. Right, we've got all these things that we just sort of shrug off as though they're no big deal. Listen to me, there's no such thing as little sin. Every evil in this world, you know what you trace it back to? Sin. You don't like terrorism, trace it back to sin. You don't like injustice, you don't like pollution, you don't like neglect, you don't like abuse. It all goes back to sin. So don't be arrogant enough arrogant enough to believe that our sin is small that it's nothing let the bad news be bad own our sin and then take it to the cross own our sin and then bask revel in God's grace Do you want to see God in his glory? You want to come on Sunday mornings and be moved to tears, to be reminded of your salvation? You've got to confront the bad news. And you've got to confront your bad news. And when we see the darkness of our own sin, then God's grace the gospel, the good news, it shines all the brighter. Let's pray. Father, oh God, 
We are a sinful people. Forgive us. We have ignored our sin. We've said it doesn't really matter. We've said it's no big deal, that it doesn't hurt anybody. But God, we know the truth. That sin is an infection, it's a virus, it's a disease, and it eats away at our hearts. And so God, right now, we just want to confess. In fact, I just want to give a moment right now for everyone in this room just to consider just for a moment what it is that they're holding on to, what it is that they, they've been in, living in denial over, whatever sin it is that has taken root in their hearts and they've, Lord, up to this point, not had the courage to confront it and to say, this is bad. In your own hearts, just consider for a moment where it is that God is, is tugging at you right now and he's saying, you've got to let go of this. This is sin and it will destroy you. It will eat away at your soul. It leads only to death. What is that for you? Is it your pride? Is it greed? How are you trying to live apart from God? How are you trying to make yourself happy without him? God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would convict us. God, not that we would be crushed by our sin, not that we'd be paralyzed by it, but that we would be free. That we would experience freedom as we take that sin, we own it, and we give it right back to you because the, pe- the debt has already been paid. That your son already took care of all of it on our behalf. God, let us relish, let us bask in the salvation, in the grace that comes through your son. Because there's nothing like it. God, we're just reminded of your glory this morning. Your glory that shines bright in a dark world where there is sin and brokenness and corruption. And yet your, your name is going forth. It is breaking through the, the darkness. God, I pray that your name would shine bright. We would see your glory. That we, 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 would, we would be reminded of our salvation, and that we would be changed. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.